VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll be discussing that board draw at Anfield. Another thriller for Villa and Arsenal moving back to the top of the Premier League Christmas tree. We'll also be talking about West Ham and matters at the bottom of the table. And joining me, Tom Clark, we've got two of the finest football writers around, Tom Allnut and Hamza Kalik Lunat. And our second favourite footballer turned pundit after Tony Cascarino, Gregor Robertson, is here as well. Come on, it's just a little jibe, a little jibe. Tony's not here. I'd say the same to him. Uh, now, Hamza, it's your debut on the show this season. Welcome to the Game Podcast. Um, slightly worrying from my point of view, given that I like to like make little jibes at Gregor Robertson. You said beforehand that you're probably just going to agree with everything Gregor says. Um, anything else you're going to be offering the listeners as well as agreeing with Gregor? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> Gregor does a really good job and... and... I'm just standing in for Alison today, I guess. <laughs> okay, so, and if anything, Alison has missed out, I'll, I'll, I'll cover me. Some very literary, ethereal views on football that kind of zigzag off and then come back to the eventual point. I'd say that's Alison's kind of bread and butter. So if you can deliver that for us, uh, that would be great. One thing you can deliver for us, of course, is being a Liverpool fan. So you do stand in for Alison on that front. And let's go to Anfield and their nil-nil draw with Manchester United. Um I mean, I don't really know what to make of this match and I don't want to dwell on it too long because it was not the kind of classic, thrilling 7-0 that people perhaps were expecting. Um, starting perhaps with Manchester United then, um, Henry Winter writing this morning on the Times website about uh, this showing that the players are behind Eric Ten Hag. Um, and let's be honest, it is, a, it is a positive result for them with the players that they had at their disposal to get to get and draw at Anfield, um, despite it being a kind of quite a negative, pragmatic performance, Greg. Yeah, everyone expected them to get rolled over, basically. Um, I think by the looks of it, Liverpool expected that was going to be the case as well. So, I don't know, I think you can draw a little bit too much out of it. Out of it. Um, this is the story of Manchester United, really, for a number of years now, and the, the, the cycle of kind of woeful performances and then some more spirited ones that show they're not completely throwing the towel in. Uh, but I think over a longer period of time that's consistency that's been elusive and that's what Den Hag said after the game he said these we need to have a sort of minimum stand, you know, level of standards that we we reach every game and that's been a problem and they reached them uh, in this game but beyond that they didn't do that much and I think it still showed that Manchester United are a long way from competing with the, the best teams in the, in the country we um, discussed last week on Thursday's show when we had Wally Downs in about um, kind of an idea of Manchester United going a little bit 
not back to basics but just kind of stripping away all the kind of outside thought about styles of play and actually just working really really hard um we did at least see that tom didn't we and i wonder whether perhaps in a team that's kind of really struggled sometimes with these kind of overblown superstars not performing when you've got a midfield of manu amrabat scott mctominay actually that buys into that idea that you are at least going to get three players who are going to work for the manager yeah, back to basics, I guess, and and Varane in defence. You know, who knows? He's actually a very good defender, and has made a bit of a difference. I mean, I guess you know, there's a danger. I think with United, obviously, week to week, kind of lurching from one narrative to the next. You know, that it's this is the crisis. Ten Hag's about to leave, and then a, a match like this, and you think, well, everything's fine. But actually, maybe it's just kind of consistent with what we know about United. That probably in the league right now, they're maybe the sort of sixth, seventh, eighth best team. I mean, you look at the the results they've had recently. They've kind of scraped past Burnley, Sheffield United, Fulham, Luton. You know, okay, they've got a, a decent goalless draw away at Liverpool, but that can happen if you're kind of in the top half of the league. I think this is fairly consistent with where we think United are at. You know, they're not going to be challenging the top two or three. They may put a run together to sort of you know, challenge for the top four or five, but you know this this result, I guess you could say, was a bit of a rally. But equally, I mean, I don't think there was anything there creatively in this performance that makes you think they're suddenly going to go on a run and and you know this side is suddenly going to become a a team that's anything different to what we've seen this season. I agree with you. Back to kind of basics, maybe the fundamentals were there, and maybe that's encouraging. But if anything, you know, it's it just kind of shows how low the bar is nowadays. You know, if, if you have sort of a performance that's that's just sort of determined and fighting and defensively fairly organised, then you can count that as a positive for United. You know, they didn't get thrashed ultimately at Liverpool and that is kind of the best you can say about them. Yeah, one of those players I mentioned there, Hamza, Kobe Mainu, should United fans be, they were excited about him in the summer um, when he was part of their kind of pre-season plans and then he got injured. Is he a kind of player that could be a bright spark for them going forward? Uh, yeah, he's he's quite a good young player. I think the key with all young players, so he's not placed too much expectation mm-hmm. on them. Uh, he seems quite promising. But again, like just temper those expectations. He had that really nice pass that he played in in behind to Garnacho, uh, which almost resulted in a shot. But I think Trent Alexander Arnold just got the touch in before. Uh, that was a nice move. Uh, he, he shows an ability to receive in space, uh, play through pressure. So good qualities that you'd hope from a team that's looking to dominate possession and play through the lines. Uh, but Again, just a very young player, so it's important to not sort of uh, uh, over-egg, uh, over-egg him just just to make sure that uh, he doesn't sort of feel the weight of expectation. Telling me not to get carried away, you're definitely from the Gregor Robertson school of punditry. <laughs> uh, but moving on to Liverpool, Hamza, I wanted to ask you about them. Paul Joyce has written on the Times website today, um, all too frenzied and forced as 34 Liverpool shots come to nothing. Um, would you agree with that frenzied and forced nature? Do you think, or is it a little bit of what Gregor said of where they were expecting United to be really poor and they were expecting to kind of beat them and maybe they got wrapped up in the idea of, oh, it's going to be 7-0 again. Uh, I think uh, Paul's actually spot on, um, as he usually is. Uh, the, the way that Liverpool started, there was a sort of frenzied nature to that. You saw that they pressed super, super hard and I think it, it came across like they wanted it a bit too much. They wanted to really stamp their authority on the match and they started taking sh- shots from silly areas. They got the ball into generally good areas moved it into the final third then started to move into the box but from there that was really bad decision making Liverpool played too narrow Trent Alexander-Arnold came in field which is fine doesn't normally but when he did that there weren't enough options out wide on the right to, to hold the width and Anfield is quite a narrow pitch anyway 
Uh, it has one of the its smallest sort of square meterages in the in in the league. Uh, so maximising space is quite important, and Liverpool didn't quite do that. And yeah, there are a lot of shots from outside the box. Uh, really forced efforts. Um, yeah, this was a the, the thing is so I guess thirty four shots, eight shots on target, uh, two point three xg. You'd expect sometimes that maybe one of those was just bouncing off someone. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but yeah, uh, just really poor decision making in the final third from Liverpool. I mean, in fairness, Liverpool had a hundred percent home record before that game. So, like, often with comprehensive wins, looking at the. Uh, 3-0 against Brentford, Forest 3-0 as well, 3-1 against uh, West Ham, 3-0 against Aston Villa. They kind of found a way to win against Fulham most recently as well. Um, so, despite everything we're saying about Manchester United, it was like a pretty good defensive display in that they shut space and they looked like, as Tom's saying with Varane uh, back in the team, Shaw back in the team, uh, even with Johnny Evans playing, who's kind of you know, he knows what he's doing. If you're if you're defending the box, uh, they looked like they they had a you know kind of fairly solid back line. They did ride the luck a little bit, but for Manchester United, this was this was undoubtedly a kind of a positive result. It does say what say a lot about Manchester United and where they're at. But you know, when you look at the stats and everything that Hamza just talked about there, this was a, a positive result for Manchester. United. Do you think it's a one-off, though, Gregor? I mean, I feel like in the last few weeks we've seen this from Liverpool a little bit. You know, we were all kind of thinking that Liverpool were. This kind of chaotic, wild team, you know, maybe are going to kind of go far in the title race, but do they have the kind of control? But actually, I mean, I was at the game against Palace the week before, and they were really lucky in that match. You know, Palace were one nil up. Liverpool didn't really create anything. They looked so sort of listless and lacking in sort of tempo and direction. And they only really, you know, who knows what would have happened, what would have happened, but they only got the two late goals after the after Palace had a man sent off. You know, and thanks to a sort of Harvey Elliott long ranger in, in, in added time, you know, and there have been a few of those, right, against Fulham, Sheffield United, they would sort of scrape through. I mean, maybe this is the kind of, you know, champions team where they scrape through without playing well, but equally, I don't know, I'm not really seeing this kind of Liverpool that everyone's getting excited about recently. The, the forward, Darwin Nunes hasn't scored now, what, in nine or ten games, Diaz, we haven't really seen the best of Diaz since the whole kidnapping thing. I just sort of wonder, when are we going to see Liverpool get out of kind of third gear, you know? The thing is, about the seasons, we're seeing that about almost every team, yeah. <laughs> and they're still hardly second in the league. So, um, you know, there are, there are imperfections in every team in in the title race, which is which is what is making us quite excited about it being a good title race. Um, I absolutely agree. There've been a lot of kind of margin, you know, marginal victories, chaotic kind of victories as well. Last minute goals, last minute equalizers, all that kind of thing. So it's not controlled. And the one team we're probably going to come and talk about who's starting to look a bit more controlled is Arsenal. Yeah, well, we'll come on to them. I just want to give final word on Liverpool to you, Hamza. Thinking about some of the things that Thomas said there and looking at that team as well, because in the summer there was lots made about transfers not quite getting it right, but you've got Sabozlai, Endo and Gravenbach in that midfield. And then, as Tom says, you've got Nunes, who God loves a trier but can't seem to score a goal. What, what do you think about the team at the minute? Is it is it a little bit short in areas? Is it just waiting to gel? Is it too many new players? I think, uh, as is true for most of the league, they've got a lot of injuries. So you look at so McAllister is out, Thiago was People forget about Thiago, right? He's a really cool player. Mm. Uh, 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 Jota's out. Uh, there's a number of... Uh, Matip's out as well. So there's a number of players that are missing, which which affects the way that they play. Uh, Diaz, I think, his, actually, his form actually... His bad form extends back to his knee injury. Uh, since then, he, his, his production has dropped off massively. Uh, if, if, if Liverpool were to compete 
I remember saying this at the start of the season that they, they needed to have a sort of increase in production from Diaz of around like a quarter uh, and instead it's dropped off by around that same amount uh, so yeah there's a few things going on there they've got the system change um, but even with all that stuff going on uh, if you look at so, um, in terms of expected goal difference they're still quite good 0.88 which is pretty good ideally you want one that's a, a measure of an elite team and only one team is doing that this season uh, over the past 10 matches uh, Arsenal uh, in terms of expected threat so like if you sort of so expected goal difference comes from all the sort of shots that you have uh, but it doesn't sort of uh, take into account control so if you sort of measured up every sort of player's ability to move the ball into dangerous areas and that's how you get sort of expected threats you have your threat for threat against subtract it and it's like the best measure of uh, control and arsenal at 1.11 incredible uh, over the past 10 matches uh, cities has dropped off uh, liverpool's is 0.87 cities 0.7 uh, so they aren't as controlled as arsenal um but yeah there's, there's a few different things going on uh, and a few players have that, that form over the past six matches in particular City have dropped off Liverpool dropped off and suddenly Arsenal have found a new gear particularly sort of Martin Odegaard uh, and that's all knitted everything together very nicely over this period where you, especially when you've got six matches uh, you've got such a concentrated number of matches in uh, such a short amount of time if you're playing well in this period the points just rack up very very quickly and suddenly you're yeah, top of the league First appearance on the podcast, Hamza and you're already linking us between se- sections so we've been to Arsenal already perfect stuff Um they're top of the table, uh, taking advantage of Liverpool um, dropping points. Tom, Hamza's already outlined kind of some of the things they're doing well. I wanted to ask you first about a piece you wrote for the Sunday Times all about Jorginho. Um, it was headlined, How Jorginho is Acting as Mikel Arteta's Eyes and Ears, uh, and predominantly looked at his role kind of off the pitch rather than on it. Yeah, we spoke to Jorginho. He calls himself Georgie. Jorginho on Friday. I think <laughs> I can call him Georgie. Oh, gee. Um... And uh, it kind of came from the Villa game the week before because um, Arteta was sort of banished to the stands because of his ban. And, and it was very noticeable that Jorginho was kind of on the line, you know, running up and down the technical box, uh, instructing the players. He looked very much like a, like an assistant manager, I guess. Um, and uh, we spoke to him on Friday and we were talking to him about this. And, you know, he's clearly, he sort of ticks a lot of the boxes, I guess, of the of the of the... The, the things we kind of expect of of man, players who are going to be good managers, you know, he's a defensive midfielder, uh, very kind of good on the ball, understands the game, speaks lots of, he speaks four or five different languages. Um, he's won things, of course, you know, with the Champions League with Chelsea and the, and the Euros with Italy. Um, and there is this idea, you know, that he is sort of a, a conduit almost between the players and, and, the, and the coaching staff. Um, and also, you know, this idea that Arsenal needed to bring in some some kind of winning mentality, I guess, and to use that cliche, but also sort of experience and, and players like this, where it's not just about kind of technical ability and nice players like Odegaard and you know, Reese Nelson, etc., but players like Declan Rice, who we've obviously talked about a lot, who on the pitch is kind of bringing that physicality, that sort of um, killer instinct, if you like. And I think off the pitch, Jorginho is providing a bit of that as well. Um, not playing very much, although will be being brought on, you know, for the sort of latter stages of games to add what we've talked about, that kind of control. Um, but off the pitch, you know, very much the sort of brain box and eyes and ears of Arteta in the changing room. Yeah, well, it's interesting you talk about that area of midfield with him, Declan Rice and Hamza, to go back to your point about Martin Odegaard. Do you think he's a player that has, with the likes of Jorginho coming in and then Declan Rice, he's, his game has gone up a level? 
Uh, definitely. Uh, again, I'll come back to sort of six match sort of average. So, um, Odegaard, as everyone knows, wasn't playing as well at the start of the season. Uh, and that form didn't compare to how he played last season. But then in the past six matches, he's averaging sort of 3.2 key passes a match, uh, five passes into final third, 3.3 passes into penalty area. Uh, so the issue Arsenal had at the start of the season with Odegaard was that he just wasn't involved very much. Now they've found how to do that. And that part of that comes through Rice. Uh, in fact, there's actually what Rice does, he opens up all sorts of tactical possibilities. And in the Brighton match, uh, on match of the day, you can find this sort of like image. But um, the way Brighton play is they, when they're building out from the back at the goalkeeper, they will leave four forwards forward. Uh, so they'll go man for man uh, at the top of the pitch. So if you're the defending team, you also have to leave four players left. But if you want to press, you're going to have to send your forwards into their box. Uh, which leaves a massive space between the defensive line and the forward line. Uh, and that's what Brighton looked to exploit. They ideally want to draw you in and then play into those spaces and there's loads of space and then they can attack it. Uh, Arsenal had one man there, Declan Rice, and he was incredible. He had, he had to cover this entire section of the pitch on his own uh, and choose when to either move forward and join the rest of the press or when to drop off. And he had all of it sort of done perfectly. Uh, and that was the difference there. And him being able to get the ball in those situations and immediately feed it to Odegaard in the, on the cusp of the final third meant that Odegaard was suddenly in far better attacking situations than he has been in the previous sort of like 10 matches. And then you could begin to see his influence a lot more. So yeah, um, Rice is a facilitator in more ways than many people realise in that it allows Odegaard to be a bit further forward and get closer to Saka uh, and Jesus and all those players. Do you think Arsenal then potentially for Arsenal fans it's exciting in the idea that they could be getting even better gradually and gradually as the season and as we hit this busy Christmas period as well? It definitely I mean you, you can look at the sort of stuff that uh, we wrote at the start of the season when it was clear Arsenal were defending very well but the attacking fluency was, was absent. You look at the first match I was, I was at the Forest match and I was at the Fulham match and it looked like the players didn't know what they were doing up front uh, they looked quite sort of dazed and sort of uh, over-encumbered with information. Uh, and that was true for a number of matches where, the, again, just wasn't any sort of attacking fluence. So Arsenal had this tendency to play in a sort of horseshoe around the back, play to the wings, and then try and progress up the field that way. They still do that in a similar sort of way, but in, instead of just playing to the horseshoe, now they're involving their centre midfielders and Havertz has come into his own a little bit after looking like a complete sort of ghost for the first sort of eight matches, I think that's probably fair to say. And Odegaard has, has found himself a bit more as well. Uh, so yes, uh, the, the key point was that Arsenal were pushing top of the league, moving top, without even playing well. And now in the past six matches, you take the first half against Wolves and other games like that, you see real attack influence, real cohesion. You take the Lens match, Champions League in particular, where they're actually allowed to play in transition. You go, wow, there's a brilliant attacking team there that we saw last season and we hadn't really seen between April to November. Hmm. And now they're back again, but with that amazing defensive performance that is by far the best in the league. Set piece suppression, open play suppression. Arsenal are excellent, top to bottom. Great. Well, the, let's that's... see if Gregor agrees with you no, then, because the... I was going to ask about Arsenal, but also about City, because it's the team that you always come back to and say, oh, they're going to, they're going to win the league. They drop points again, two-two uh, at home to Crystal Palace. Uh, kind of asking you about Arsenal and City then, because looking at both of them at the minute, there's only one team that looked like a kind of title favourites, and it's not Manchester City. Yeah, it's like a team that, that has found that, that sense of control about their play and a team in City who are still desperately trying to find it. Um, 
I'm glad Hamza said at the end that the kind of result of that for Arsenal is also is the best defence in the league because you know you can't overstate how important that is and that's you know in this game it was it was it was because of the way they kind of strangled Brighton and, and you know Brighton normally have sixty what sixty two percent possession I think on average and in this game it was like fifty one which is a massive drop off and Deserby said afterwards like we're used to controlling the game. This is not. This is that was my most disappointing thing from this is that we didn't control the game. So to do that to Brighton is no mean feat. Um, City. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I find it harder. You know, as we're doing a Q and A for the site today, picking a, a winner. I'm finding it harder and harder to stick with City, but I am sticking with them. I know. Well, I'm going to keep pushing you until you well, flip flop and change your mind. Well, because <laughs> this is the lowest. So we know this is the low, now the lowest number of points that Guardiola's Guardiola team has won. At this stage of the season, uh, for Manchester City, only one fewer than one season when they won the league. I should point out, which was 2020-21. Um, and there's also a kind of important stat, which was important in this game as well, is that they've now dropped nine points from conceding five goals after the 80th minute. That puts them top of the league. Mm. And it's you know it's not easy to say right. We'll 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 cut them out, but. There is something about again. It's the kind of control thing about not being able to kind of see out games in the way that you used to. You used to just knock the ball around and and like see out games with ease. And uh, there've been sort of individual errors. Diaz going to run him back with uh, Schlupp, I think it was, in the build up to the first goal. Foden gave it away really, really poorly in the build up to the second. Then gave away the penalty. These are things that would have Guardiola tearing his hair out if he had any. So like. I, but I'm still. I still think. I still think that, in the grand, you know, the grand scheme of things, looking at the overall picture, there's a lot of improvements still to come from City. So I, I still think they'll win the league. Interesting. Uh, as as you mentioned there, Greg, this piece can you can read the Q and A with uh, our football writers. Uh, will be on the Times website probably by the time you're listening to this podcast. So check it out. But one of the answers and questions that I can give you an exclusive insight to is who will win the Premier League. And Tom, or not you picked Arsenal. I did pick Arsenal. Yeah. I think, I don't know, I wasn't questioned on it at the start of the season, so I don't know if I'm being consistent or not, but in my mind, I feel like I was picking Arsenal at the start of the season, but that might just be... Tom asks us every week. Listen, anyway. <laughs> don't, don't worry about consistency, I'm just talking about your answer today, and a kind of a, as a summary, if you like, about the guys' points about Arsenal. I just, I'm just impressed with their, with the control, I think that is a big, big factor. I also just think they've got this real um, tunnel vision this year. I know they got the Champions League and they're playing well there as well, and that will come in in February, March again. But I just get the sense around Arsenal that they really are focusing on the league and they feel very ready to be champions this year. I think last year it almost happened a little bit earlier than everyone thought, and they were like, Oof, you know, blimey, we're, we're, we're top of the table. What do we? How, how do we handle this? You know, and we all saw the kind of collapse. This year, I feel like they're ready to kind of take the next step. It reminds me a little bit of, um, you know. Other sport, but remember how Novak Djokovic you know, lost a series of Grand Slam finals before eventually winning one, and Andy Murray as well. And I think some, sometimes in these things, you have to go through that kind of failure mentally to to sort of understand what needs to be done next time. And that, that's the vibe I get about Arsenal this year. Very focused, very uh, ruthless. The one game that sort of worried me a little bit was that Luton game, in fact, you know, when they won 4-3 in the last minute. I thought well, that was a bit more kind of like the old Arsenal last season, very emotional, kind of chaotic, last-minute winners, etc., but in general, they just look almost slightly sort of predictable, almost slightly boring, you know. And when we're talking about Liverpool and City and everything is so kind of scatty and 
it's that kind of trudge of win, 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 2 nil, 1 nil. these kind of things that I think really makes them shine out at the moment. An absolutely massive game on Saturday, of course. Liverpool hosting Arsenal, um, probably the fixture of the season so far, potentially. Um, but can't not talk about the top of the table without mentioning Aston Villa, because they're still there. 38 points, only one behind the leaders, Arsenal. Um, and it was another thrilling win for them. Gregor, you were there at Brentford. Did it feel like a, you know, I found it interesting when they equalised, for example, straight into the, straight get the ball back to the centre circle, you know. It looked like a team that's like, we need to win every single game. We want, we, we want to win the title. Yeah, I mean, it was a weird game because up and it it turned into like utter madness in the last 20 mm. minutes from from Ben Mee sending off which did tilt the game in their favor because up until that point correct decision for you just quick yeah 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 continue um up until that point they had created chances in the first half but 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 it was really fascinating in the first half I was telling Hamza this earlier there were periods in the in the first half in particular where the only player not in, def- in Brentford's defensive third was Emmy Martinez, the goalkeeper. So even the centre halves were like fully involved in trying to press and probe through and break down Brentford, who were also absolutely happy to sit and defend their box and try and when they win win the ball, turn it over to exploit Villa's high line. So it was a really fascinating kind of tactical tussle. And but Villa could have scored three or four in the first half. Then Brentford uh, score score before half time and had something to hold on to. So like. Until the until the sending off, I'm not. I I was watching the game thinking I think Brentford could see this out, mm. and I think there's every chance they would have. So it did take a bit of fortune, but what they did was they really kind of went for the jugular once once uh, Ben Mee had gone off, and and I, you know I know it's a cliche, but it's kind of they've just they ground out a really gritty win at a place that everyone hates going to, even though Brentford were injury injury ravaged. The way that they set up to play in that kind of like five, three, two, like so hard to break down. And Emery said that afterwards. He's like, I knew that this was going to be a really, really difficult place to come and get a win. And despite all the chaos, despite Emmy Martinez's antics and all this, which which were hilarious, he was just absolutely delighted to leave with the three points. Do you think very quickly on Ben May and decisions, he should have had a penalty in the first half with John McGinn's grappling? Yeah, I mean the thing that is perplexing is is kind of that when when VAR doesn't doesn't intervene, and we've seen this, a few a few things in this weekend. Uh, that 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 was definitely a penalty. Um, the one with Mopai, I think Mopai Mopai went through again after Ben Mead sent been sent off, but before Villa equalised, so it would have made it two nil. Mopai went clean through, and he tried to buy the penalty. He stepped across Konza and went over. But you've seen them given, mm. so you, you could see why Thomas Frank was pretty upset by this. Yeah, Brentford can feel a little bit hard done by um, Hamza on Villa. They're a team that you've written about lots um, with James Gibran in the football newsletter, and also in your piece uh, looking at trends across football in the country. What is it you think they've got? Is it is it all about Unai Emery, or is it about these players? A uh, bit of both. Uh, there's some form that's. I mean, if you take a look at Ollie Watkins and Emmy Martins in particular. Uh, Watkins is historically quite a streaky player uh, and at the start of last season he had this like, historically bad performance level for him as in, so he had lots of XG but was undershooting it uh, by a significant amount and Emery comes in and tweaks his position very slightly so, he's, so what Steven Gerrard asked him to do was to contribute in midfield and uh, support the build-up and Emery told him essentially 
no, I'd like you to actually play as a more conventional centre forward, uh, and rather than trying to come in deep, I want you to run in behind. And that very slight change meant that the quality of chances that Watkins was now getting on the end of increased, and it reduced the sort of responsibilities on him to try and link play, just let him focus on being a finisher. Uh, and then with Emmy Martinez, uh, if you look again, if you look at his the expected goals he was meant to concede and the goals that he did, he was really performing very badly until the World Cup, and then he had an excellent World Cup and returned to to English shores with uh, the feeling of a world champion and since then his form has been incredible uh, and he's been brilliant and then you've got other stories Bubakar Kamara was injured last season for quite a long time brilliant. he's excellent uh, Douglas Louise excellent as well these players that uh, now have been sort of enmeshed and had a bit more time to get to know each other so there's a few tactical tweaks that Emery's done and I think what he has He's put a bit more emphasis in Johnny's piece with uh, with Emery. The interview around a month ago, he mentioned Emery's first sort of sentence to the players was, uh, "I'm I'm not happy." Uh, do you want to know why I'm not happy? And they also went, oh, "Is it because we're near the relegation zone?" He went, "No, because a manager's been sacked, and that's on you." Uh, and that sort of um, that intensity and that sort of elite sort of uh, mentality, for want of a better phrase. Uh, is precisely what Emery has bought and uh, I think that's why coming in together and, and tapping into all those other things uh, why Villa are playing well at the moment Yeah, it's exciting times for Aston Villa but you mentioned him there twice we have to talk about Emmy Martinez now as a fan of a team in the Football League I am I, I'm a huge fan of I'm going to say it shithousery I'm an absolute massive <laughs> fan of it I think it's brilliant and I think it's much needed aspect of this game I would say <laughs> really <laughs> I would say that Emmy Martinez however is treading a fine line between shithouse and arsehole uh, <laughs> because I, I, I don't know how he can keep pushing it what I mean Tom it's a subject that you have written about before this game uh, Emmy Martinez one of the most hated players but so loved they named a frog after him and I mean it is becoming as much, probably more so, you know, Hamza's outlining what a good footballer he is, but this is becoming the dominant narrative around him as a player, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there are certain players that kind of generate this extremity of opinion, you know. I mean, I sort of think about you know, Sergio Ramos comes to mind. I think Luis Suarez was a bit like this, wasn't yeah. he, when he was in the Premier League? And I think Emi Martinez is probably now the kind of number one in the world for this sort of thing. Where, you know, Argentina fans and Villa fans absolutely love him. You know, he is an absolute legend, brilliant goalkeeper, etc. You said, I mean, in Argentina, after they won the World Cup, they named this sort of ancient South American horn frog Dibu Martinez after him. You know, that would just not happen right anywhere else. But for every other team, you know, he's a complete pain in the arse, basically. And, and But I, I think he's a fascinating character because... In a way, this sort of um, partnership with, with Emery is really interesting because Emery is like the biggest kind of football nerd, if you like, you know, very straight, quite cold emotionally almost, you know, very methodical. And yet somehow they found this kind of common ground where they're both obsessed about the game, you know, very kind of passionate, will to win, I guess, is where the kind of the common ground is between them. And it goes right back to when they were at Arsenal together and, and Emery kind of you know, said to Martinez, for example, when you know he sent him out on loan and he had two offers to go to the Leeds at the time who were kind of gunning for promotion at Reading who were basically trying to survive. And Emery said to him, look, I want you to go to, to Reading because you've had it too easy. I want to see you in the heat of the battle where, you know, in a, in a difficult situation where you're going to have to make a lot of saves. And so Martinez went to Reading and he said basically that his his time at Reading was really formative for him because he, he basically realised that 
he didn't call it arrogance. He said you need. It's not the arrogance about thinking you're the best goalkeeper in the world. It's the it's having the arrogance that you can have the confidence to show it. Almost like putting on a persona on the pitch that gives others kind of confidence, gives you confidence. It's almost like an act, right? That you mm. kind of pretend like you're the you're the dog's bollocks, and then you become it. And that is kind of what Martinez does, I think. You know, I think it, it is almost an act. You know, I, you know, you talk to people behind the scenes about Martinez. You know, and he's family man, three dogs, two kids. He launched like a lovely. Um, um, uh, institute back in his hometown in Argentina for like struggling teenagers when he goes back there he's like a you know very nice kind of calm kind of guy but on the pitch he's a pain in the ass you know and, and that is kind of part of the package you know and I think in a way you know he's one of the leaders in the dressing room Emery loves him and the Villa fans love him because of that you know he mm. generates this kind of feel and atmosphere around around the game and, and, and also just to finish the point he's a really good goalkeeper like you look at the stats and this, this is kind of the point for him I think is the shame is that maybe it slightly takes away from his performances because ultimately, when you think about Martinez and Argentina in the World Cup last year, what do you think? You think about the image of him holding the uh, the trophy over his crotch. You, yeah. you think about um, the celebrations with Mbappe holding the doll, etc., etc. You forget that it was his save against Colomani, which basically won Argentina in the World Cup. You know, forget Messi and everything. If it wasn't for that save, France the world champions. Mm. And in a way, that World Cup Argentina win should be remembered just as much for Martinez as it is for Messi. But it's not because of all this extra stuff. So in a way, I guess it's good for him and also it's bad for him. Maybe if, maybe if he was a slightly calmer character, we'd all be saying he's one of the best goalkeepers in the world. But the reason I touch on the idea that it's maybe going a little too far, because I take your point, all those things are why, and as I said at the top, as a, even as an opposition fan, the reason we hate these players is because actually secretly we want them on our team. Because we know that if they were on our team, we would love them. But the reason I make the point about Martinez maybe taking it a little too far is the example of this match against Brentford, Gregor, where... You know, it, it, he kind of manufactures, along with Neil Mope, another one fond of these kind of Yeah, antics. lovely fella. Um, but he manufactures a situation where, and in the end, Kamara gets sent off mm. for a straight red card. And it was, I thought it was really interesting watching Don McGinn's reaction. Yes. Going, for God's sake, yeah. why have you done that? Yeah. You just, oh, crap, we've got a player sent off for the straight red card at a really important time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it sparked, a, it sparked some... some uh, Heated scenes. I mean, it was hilarious too because when he was trying to haul up uh, Neil Mopai, Neil, Neil Mopai was like some kind of dummy, like <laughs> just kind of like completely limp and just like fell back onto yeah. the floor with his shirt over his head, didn't move at any point. Uh, it was it was just like bantamine stuff. But um, you're absolutely right. It, it's created a kind of Emery ran onto the pitch to try and con- you yeah. know contain his players. He was booked. There was a dozen bookings in the second half. But there was a lot after that incident as well. And as you say, Kamara was sent off and he'll be suspended and missing for the next game now because he he went just too far. He grabbed hmm. grabbed an opponent by the face and they're always going to go off after that. So did they get anything from it? That's that's the ultimate that's ultimately what you, you you're asking at the end of this. He had he made some really big saves. They gained a lot from that. I'm not sure they gained anything from him. Like having a little set to with Neil Mopai in the closing stages when they were already in front. Very interesting indeed. Well, if you've got strong views on Emmy Martinez's behaviour, or maybe you just want to tell us something that we've missed in recent weeks, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, up next, we're taking a look at the teams at the bottom of the table. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark and I'm joined today by Hamza Khalik Lunat, Tom Olmut and Gregor Robertson. Now, chaps, before we get back to the football, I wanted to briefly mention Tom Lockyer, the Luton Town captain who collapsed during their match at Bournemouth. Um, I wanted to discuss it, not to speculate on what might happen, um, but because, Tom, you interviewed um, Lockyer during the summer and he talked very openly about the first time that this kind of thing had happened to him in the playoff final last summer, which was obviously another very traumatic event. Tell us a little bit about that interview interview and the kind of player that you encountered and met that day yeah it was, it was a really enjoyable interview actually um Tom Lockie is really um open guy and you can really tell that he's one of those players who's come from low down the leagues you know from a sort of journalistic point of view he doesn't he didn't have that kind of pizzazz and, and glamour and so, you know he was very open and relaxed we sat at the training ground at Luton and the planes going over as normal and and he was talking through his his long career and how he almost kind of um gave it up when he was he, he called his mum to come meet him in Nando's one day and he basically said mum I've had enough like I'm not getting in the team I think this was the Bristol Rovers which was his first club and and I think it's sort of the club of his heart really and he very nearly kind of gave up the game and, and his mum was very much like oh you know you got to keep going you know no, no she, his mum sorry was like okay like maybe you just go and do something else I've always thought this sort of thing <laughs> he, went, <laughs> he went home or whatever and his dad was sort of on the phone and said what are you having your mum said get back <laughs> training pitch get back into it so that's how he kind of carried on the, his career. Um, really nice guy, good defender. I mean, you know, he talked about what happened in the playoff final and and, he, and you could tell that it was still very much kind of at the, the forefront of his mind. It wasn't something that he kind of had pushed away. He was, he said he found it quite difficult still to talk about it, that his mum couldn't even look at any of his kind of playoff memorabilia. You know, I think he probably has the shirt hanging up in his room or something and he said that she can't can't even really look at it or even, you know, go over the photos of the final. And, and he admitted that he found it quite difficult to kind of come to terms with with him missing out on that moment you know he, he admitted he felt a bit of resentment towards the whole thing for for a few weeks afterwards um but obviously at the beginning of the season just huge enthusiasm to be back in the premier league um and you know talking about facing Erling Haaland and all this kind of thing uh, i mean i guess you know obviously we wish him wish him all the best um and we, we wait to see kind of what happens from here i mean he was talking about how he was treated by the same doctor as christian eriksen it's dr sharma i think it is um and obviously it's a problem they have to fix, right? Because, I mean, who knows if he's going to come back and play, play in the game again. But, I mean, yeah, we wish him we wish him all the best. Absolutely, we do wish him well. It's an incredibly difficult time, but obviously a very strong character, as you could tell from that interview. Um, we've got to move on, and we're going to talk about some more football again now. And Hamza, you were at West Ham. And we, I was excited about this. I thought Moisey's done it again. 
Mohamed Kudus got lots to be excited about and yet in the pre preparing for this show you were like nah not, not so fast yeah it was a quite even game actually I know they won 3-0 uh, but the, the actual game was pretty sort of even chances for both teams the, the only difference was that um, West Ham were clinical and the reason they were clinical was because they've got Kudus and Baguetta and Bowen, some really, really cool attacking players, and, uh, and I, I included Alvarez in 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 those three as some sort of as a sort of fabulous technical four foursome because uh, they're they're brilliant and they understand each other really well. So uh, later on in the game, uh, Pakistan moved to the number nine position and he interchanged with Bowen really nicely, set him up for the, the third goal. You see throughout the match uh, and across matches this season. Uh, Pakatar has swapped with Alvarez. So Alvarez will advance forward and press, and Pakatar will drop deep to instigate play. Yeah, there's some really, really cool players there that um, that you just wish you could see a bit more of. But um, at the same time, I guess we are seeing more of Kadus. He's an excellent signing, and I think uh, I think I read somewhere today that um, yeah, Eric Ten Hag will be looking at at Kudus again. I probably signed the wrong Ajax player. Because uh, um, he's performing far, far better than Anthony is, uh, and he looks a real prospect. The only issue is that he's going to go away for the Af mm. African Cup of Nations. Likewise, uh, Ben Rama might, mm. if he's back in time. Aguerd will go, uh, and I think uh, Maxwell Cornell might as well if he's back from from his injury. Yeah, that'd be a big blow for West Ham. Just talking again about that attacking lineup. Obviously, West Ham have had problems with a striker, a traditional striker, and lots of people have talked about, oh, this is the only thing missing. Um, obviously, they tried and kind of failed with Scamacha. Mikel Antonio has worked incredibly hard in that role for a long time. Do you actually think that with the players you've outlined there, that actually they're better with a bit of a kind of roving free-form forward line? Well, as in from a personal point of view, I, I prefer watching that. Uh, David Moyes has a very specific sort of um, profile of what he wants from a centre-forward, though. Uh, and Mikel Antonio did fit that. But if you look at his stats this season, I think... He had like nine shots at one point after like ten games. It was like really bad. Uh, it looked like his uh, his legs had gone and he's, he was really struggling for for form. Devine Obama's a really good player as well, but I I just don't get the sense at the moment that um, well, David Moyes historically has not been one to put in young players up front because of that profile. He wants players that can hold the ball up, run the channels, uh, be a bit more sort of um, robust. But at the same time, when he spoke about about Pakistan, yesterday, uh, it's on Sunday if you're listening later on in the week um, he mentioned that um, usually he doesn't give players a lot of leeway and he's, it's very important to him that he doesn't give anyone leeway but he looked with looked at Paqueta and went actually I'm going to make an exception for you, mm. you're so good you, you're excellent and with such talent like that you need to allow it to flourish and, and breathe uh, but yeah I, I think that sort of more fluid att uh, attacking line is better uh, personally uh, but I think um, David Moyes sees it a different way so you might not get to see that uh, mm. so much if you're a West Ham fan Tom it's something that I've asked Gregor a lot so I'm going to come to you instead because he's covered um, a lot of West Ham over the last kind of year or so uh, they're a, a strange team in lots of ways uh, drawing with Crystal Palace in what was widely considered one of the more boring games of the season uh, then beating Tottenham then getting smashed by Fulham uh, and now beating Wolves all while progressing in Europe as well I mean, what are, what are West Ham? They're eighth in the table at the minute. Is is that about where they are? And actually, should they be really happy with that? Yeah, I have no idea really what West Ham are. I think they're sort <laughs> of like, they were sort of trying to play more attacking football this season uh, initially in the first few months. We kind of saw a bit of that. Um, but I think there's been signs, and maybe Hamza will know this better than me, in the last few weeks they're kind of going back a little bit to, to the sort of more traditional Moy model. 
I have a problem with Bowen playing down the middle. I think he just doesn't look as threatening there. He, he looks slightly uncomfortable. I mean, I think he's probably West Ham's best option there, but maybe that's not the best option for him because I love. I think Bowen's real threat is when he arrives late, you know, when he's coming at the back post and, and coming from deep, whereas when he's playing centre-forward, I think he just sort of takes the edge off him a bit, although he is extremely good in the air. So they do have a bit of a problem there. If they could get a more sort of traditional centre forward if you like and get Bowen back out wide or maybe this rotation thing offers a solution um, then maybe that will get the best out of Bowen again I think you know ultimately Moyes knows what he's doing I don't see them ever getting pulled into the kind of bottom three or four or five teams this season and why not why, why can't they have another good European run you know I mean I think we get so kind of wound up with who's going to finish in the top four and who's going to nick the sort of seventh place, et cetera, et cetera. But why can't West Ham be a team that, OK, in the Premier League, they sort of win one week, lose another, but actually in Europe, in the Cups, they really go for it. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was West Ham would tell you that last season was one of the best seasons in their history. And, and, and I don't see why they can't make that a model to, 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 to lean on going forward. Yeah, well, going for it in the Cups is interesting, isn't it? Because they've got Liverpool in the quarterfinals of the EFL Cup and then they play Manchester United and Arsenal. But, uh, Gregor, you jump Sorry, I interrupted. I was just going to say the, the, the conflict is still there hmm. like within the fan base within sort of you know that 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 week that last week that we just had kind of summed them up you know the the as you say they beat Spurs they were hammered by Fulham then I, I was at the game where they they completely wiped the floor with Freiburg like really controlled 2-0 should have been more probably um and after the game, Moyes was asked, you know, you know, you still your contracts up in the summer. Mm. Like this is getting quite close, and the club is was ninth at that point, as in, as he said, in a quarter final, just gone through for the third consecutive year in Europe. Like what's going on? And he's like, I'm I'm completely comfortable with it. And then he was asked, well, what about the players? And he said, that's different. The players won't, you know, there's a lot of new players here. They might want to know a bit of certainty about where the club's going. So for me, I think like. The evolution. He keeps he keeps using that word as well. He said we want to see the way we play evolve, and he has to do that for him to be West Ham's long term manager. Like they might, they might if if they if they you know were to finish sixth or seventh or something this year, get to the final of the Europa League, or whatever. It'd be mad, you know, it'd be madness for him not to get a new contract. But I wouldn't imagine it'd be like a long term contract. And maybe there's another year. We'll see how we're going. It's like. A taken over thing. If he wants to be there long term, he has to evolve the way that West Ham play, and that doesn't mean just being reactive, but having quality players like Paqueta and Kudus to, who are really clinical on the break. That means being a team who are like the main protagonists in most game, and that's a massive divergence from mm. David Moyes of old. So, yeah, I think he must know that. I think I think he must know that results alone will buy. You know, will. We'll, we'll do something for him. We'll keep him, probably keep him in the job. It'll keep enough people happy. It'll keep the club happy. But he must know that it, he's not going to get enough results to to win a trophy every year. He's not going to get enough results to probably to get in the Champions League or anything like that. So he needs something else. Yeah, that's, well, the, that's the eternal conflict at the heart of West Ham just now. It always comes back to David Moyes, doesn't it? And Martin Samuel's written his uh, Monday 8am online column about that topic. Next season will be tough, he says. It's the wrong time for West Ham to lose David Moyes. So, but there's no there's no right firm committal to David Moyes is the right man no, exactly. in that column. So that's, that's, that's what's the interesting point, isn't it? And that's, as you say, that's the um, crux of the argument. There's no... There's no buying in, and even but even, that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Even Moyes himself has kind of accepted this as the as the state of play, and he might even accept a one-year contract. So just to finish, chaps, on the subject of West Ham, two questions: 
Will David Moyes be given a new contract at the end of the season? And should he be given a new contract at the end of the season? Greg? God, they're almost impossible questions to answer uh, That's why I asked them. Um, Sh- should he? Should Based on what you've seen, try and try to forget all the kind of West Ham... I can honestly background. see the arguments for both, but if they, if they continue in this vein and, you know, they're competing to get in Europe in European spots in the in the Premier League, if they're threatening to win a trophy, you know, a domestic trophy, if they're going deep in Europe again, I can't see how you can sack him. But I totally understand all the the so feelings. Yet, so yes, you think he should get? I feel he should stay. Yeah, but I Do totally you, understand. You don't think he will? No, I think he might. I think he might. You yeah. think he might? I think he Hamza? might. Uh, I think, uh, to be honest. My guess is as good as any listeners. <laughs> you will or will not. I so. know, but that's the fun of it. You're Truth- here, they're not. Truthfully, I, I don't know whether he will. Uh, I also think there's a sort of fascination and sort of fetishization of a certain style of play that we have nowadays. Everyone wants to play nice football. Uh, but I, I think actually uh, that's not always desirable. I think if everyone plays the same style of football, or yeah, we press, or we all play it up from the back, I think that's quite boring actually. Uh, and I think it, it's better to have a diversity of footballing styles, even if some aren't pretty. But I can say this as someone who doesn't support West Ham, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, I also know that David Moyes uh, is is someone that absolutely hates people talking about his future. And I completely respect that as well, because it, it is obviously awful to hear someone, some idiot who, <laughs> who writes in a newspaper saying, well, actually... <laughs> I don't have like. Are you uh, talking about yourself there, or, <laughs> yes, or Martin Tanner? About myself. <laughs> so, oh, look at this guy who doesn't have a UEFA Pro license and has never coached like a professional team, trying to tell me. You don't I... have UEFA Pro license. What? You don't have. I don't never let Get you on otherwise. Out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, I can understand that sort of. Uh, it's not very nice to talk about people. So, so, uh, on that side, at least, I would like him to stay because, um, first of all, uh, I think um, it's important to have. Uh, a diversity of tactical ideas. Second of all, I think that um, he has earned it, uh, given the European performances. Uh, and I would also think that when he talks about evolution, he would actually benefit from knowing if he's going to stay or not. As in, you can give him the opportunity to try and evolve his game, but as in, you can't try and do that midway through the season and go, actually, well, if it doesn't work, we might go out of Europe, we might finish poorly in the league, and then... The club exactly. are going to anyway. think, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so you, true. you need certainty on, on that true. front. So, I, I'd, I'd rather that he, uh, he get the opportunity to, to stay on. But I would like him to give an opportunity to define Mbappe. He's a good young player. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, maybe uh, Moyes will evolve on that side. Oh, lots of dancing around the subject. We've turned into a politics podcast. Tom, give us a definitive answer. Will he? Will he be there? And should he? Uh, I think he won't be because I think he only stayed really last season because of how they finished and that's how often these things happen you know it's not about long term strategy it's about the last five games and the kind of the vibes you know and obviously the vibes from West Ham in the last season were great and it will just depend on whether they happen to finish well this season or not should he I, I mean I take Kanzo's point about diversity I guess the thing is that if you are the fans who are having to kind of put up with the diversity every week, then it's a slightly different thing, you know, like for everyone else, you know, looking generally, it's lovely to have different different styles. I agree with that. But if you're the side, if you're the fans have to kind of watch long ball football every week, which actually to be fair, it's not really what Moyes is, but then it's a slightly different thing. I mean, I, I just sort of briefly, I mean, I, I think there is a, a thing here for a few clubs in the Premier League that are like this. I mean, Palace are like this as well. You know, it's the, it's the conflict between having a manager that you think is going to keep you in the division, you know, where survival is basically the strategy every every season and, you, you you know, you collect the TV money and you just exist in the Premier League. There's, and that, for a lot of clubs in the league right now, is kind of success because they're never going to break into that kind of top four, top six. And they're probably not going to get relegated. 
so the owners think, well, why roll the dice? You know, why do you roll the dice on a Andoni Iola or something, or a Patrick Vieira, or you know, and and you, and you risk. Yes, you you might get great football, and you might even kind of sneak into the top eight. But the risk that you know the stakes are so high, the risk is so much higher. You might get dragged into a relegation fight. You know, so you have these clubs in the middle who are basically just kind of happy to keep going and and hope for the best in the cups, and that's kind of where West Ham are. And I, I would. I would think maybe their fans might want something a little bit more. It's all about trajectory. Football is all about trajectory, and I think the fans might want something a little bit more, uh, a little bit more exciting, a bit more ambitious. Clubs in the middle, fans wanting a little bit more. Not sure about identity, honestly. But you lads are teeing me up perfectly from section to section here because we finished talking about Nottingham Forest and Everton, and the idea that this Premier League season, with the new teams that have come up struggling, um, I wanted to touch on the idea that. You know, this this really is a season for teams, um, not necessarily West Ham because they're performing at the higher end of the table, but teams like Everton, Forest, Palace and others to kind of solidify, work out what they are um, and be safe in the knowledge that they're going to stay up. And obviously these are two very different teams, Everton particularly because they've had that points deduction uh, and Forest on a terrible run. Um, but I wanted to start with Everton. I mean, it's an absolutely extraordinary run. 1-0 against Forest, 3-0 against Newcastle, 2-0 against Chelsea, 2-0 against Burnley. This is the most archetypal Sean Dyche thing I think I've ever seen in football, Gregor. Um, he deserves huge credit, doesn't he, for what he's done? Enormous, yeah. I mean, I was among everyone who was writing them off really at the start of the season because of... And then well, when they get a points deduction on top of that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so what he's formed out of the group of players at his disposal, as we said in, as we said before, in kind of pushing our nano up behind Calvert-Lewin, um, you know, maximising the strength that set plays, getting the most out of um, so many players, McNeil in particular, who's kind of seems he's, you know I think Tony referenced in his column today. It was kind of he's just that that one player with a little bit of heightened quality who can kind of you know score a wonder goal or put in the kind of delivery that will lead to a goal. Um, you know, he's worked with him before as well, so he's just maximising everything. At his disposal, and this was a kind of brilliant performance of Burnley. It was kind of it really summed up everything about both teams, like mm. what Burnley are about. They're kind of you know so much possession, so much uh, you know sixty two percent I think it was in this game. So much of the ball without doing a great deal with it, and in a really really soft centre as well. And Everton knowing how to pick out pick on those weaknesses and be ruthless about it. Uh, and then defend the lead. So I think, you know, we saw we saw that really laid bare in this game. Hamza, do you think you were talking with West Ham and David Moyes about a diversity of tactical ideas and tactical thinking? Greg has just outlined there that Burnley under Vincent Company are sticking rigidly with this plan and desire of the way they want to play. Are you, I guess, then from the point of view of diversity, delighted to have the likes of Sean Dyche and Everton in the league just to offer us that that's something different? Oh, definitely. I think people sort of look at Dyche's football or maybe even Thomas Frank's football at Brentford and go, well, that's not for us. I think it's actually excellent football. It's really effective. It's understanding what your team is and playing to their strengths. If you look at how they so, if you look at other teams in the division and see how they sort of control the pitch, uh, Everton literally only control as in they have a majority of touches it's more than 55% uh, in just their penalty area everywhere else they let their opponents pretty much have it uh, other teams as well Nottingham Forest um, Luton Sheffield United none of them defend anywhere near as well as Everton it, it's about tweaking and understanding how to use these players in a particular way uh, if you look at how they press as well they don't um, actually when we did the uh, when 
when James Gibb read the newsletter and we're working on it, one thing he noticed, this was a few weeks ago, uh, that Everton, top, in the league, top of the league for tackles and also, I think, second or third in Europe. That, interestingly, is a complete inversion of Dyche's tactics at Burnley. Uh, so if you look at the 16-17 season, I think, or it might be the one before, it might be the one after, uh, Burnley had the second fewest tackles in Europe. So you see this complete stylistic change, but still uh, keeping those same principles. Um, so yeah, so because yeah, was that because Burnley were famed for defending the box and making lots of blocks, kind of mm. last ditch defending, ah, yeah. rather than actually kind of being proactive. In mm-hmm. so, but as in, so Everton do press and they also don't. It's interesting they don't press all the way from the front, but what they do, they encourage teams into the middle third and then guide them with their four four two shape push them to one size and then they pounce and that's why they make loads of tackles that's why they have I think the third or second most tackles in the middle third only beaten by Tottenham this season uh, so yes absolutely I think um, Dice has done a fantastic job and I think it's really important that you have these pl- uh, these managers that provoke other managers to think in different ways if everyone just played the same way Manchester City and Arsenal would win every week because they're better at pressing and winning the ball and turning it over than everyone else and playing with possession but these teams Brentford Everton, uh, Luton, play in a completely different way, and they all play different ways for each other, to be fair to them, uh, and the Premier League is much richer for it, and managers also are much richer for it. They learn from these experiences, and players learn from these experiences. Uh, I think uh, Everton are, are excellent, and if you look at their expected goal difference, I haven't checked today, but uh, we did a piece on Saturday uh, digitally, looking at George Willoughby, uh, and I did, uh, and Everton would ninth best in the league for expected goal difference and the reason I bring that up is because Kevin Thelwell uh, the Everton director of football uh, he gave a, an interview a number of weeks ago and he mentioned that um, the first five matches Everton drew one lost four everyone looked at the results and went Everton are diabolical they're rubbish they're going to go down Sean Dyche yesterday's man blah 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 but if you watch the matches you look at them you go how are they not winning? They had loads of chances, they just couldn't finish them off. And that has been the theme. As in, when you see that sort of level of performance, and Kevin said that he looked at the expected goal difference, went, actually, there's a really good underlying sort of a performance level here. Results will turn, and inevitably they have, and they've improved. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, uh, they're really good, and I think uh, they should be finishing top half, even with points deduction. High praise indeed. Um, I wanted to bring up some of those points and relate them to Nottingham Forest now. Uh, two points behind Everton in the table, uh, only five points above Luton, and Luton have got a game in hand. Um, I mean, it, what what is the problem with Forest? Is it the off-field doubts? Steve Cooper still in charge? Um, for for how long? Who knows? Uh, Tom. This this is a missed opportunity for Forest, isn't it? In kind of the guise of what I was saying earlier around the three teams coming up being a bit inexperienced and struggling, this was a missed chance for them to kind of solidify their status in the Premier League. Yeah, give them a ten it's not point. Over yet, though. It's not over yet, but I'm saying at this point in the season, we're in de- in December, and you know, they're not in a good place. Doubts doubts about the manager in light of what Hamza was saying about a kind of uh, Everton looking like they're peaking rather than kind of tailing off. Forest look completely lost. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I just I, I've always kind of thought that Forest wouldn't necessarily be in a better place without Steve Cooper. Um, 
particularly mid-season. I, I, I tend to think that if, if they sacked Steve Cooper, that suddenly I would think of them as possibly in the mix for relegation, whereas right now I, I don't. And, I can, and maybe that's me just kind of being overly loyal to Cooper. I don't know because of what he's done. I, but I think mid-season, if they, if they rolled the dice here, then maybe, you know, I mean, if they were going to do it, they should have done it in the summer. You know, I, I just think now in the middle of the season, with all the players they have, I don't see that being a, a good solution for them. Um I don't know. I mean, I, I just think I think Forrest. I think they'll be okay. This is a bad run, and teams go through bad runs. You know, I mean, in the in the bottom half of the table, we have to accept that sometimes teams go through bad runs. This is a bad one, um, but I think I think they're going to be fine. Well, yeah, Gregor, you jumped in there and said it's not over yet, and you're quite right. I'm being very <laughs> exaggerative as always as a host of a podcast. I have to try and get some views out of you, but it, it, it's a it's a slightly worrying time for Forrest, even in the light of these teams below them who think, oh, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, look, the the last. Although it's a, it's a lengthy run, I think, what is it, 1 in 11 or 12, uh, 1 win, something like 11 or 12. It's the last six games of they've lost five of the last six. Before that, there was like four draws and, and a win in, a, in that bunch, and it wasn't a bad bunch of, game, of results, actually. But since uh, they lost to West Ham, in fact, that's that's been a kind of real turning point for them. And I am, you know... I, I absolutely would like to see. You know, I think Steve Cooper should keep his job, but it's starting to creep in where it it gets to a point with a manager where it's almost of no return. You think, you're also thinking of the future too. You're thinking, Evangelos Maranakis, the owner, has been itchy. He's been he's been itching to to make a change for a long, long time, and you just don't see a sort of synergy between. Steve Cooper, this really calm, sort of, you know, really well respected and liked in the dressing room, uh, you know, process driven manager, and this feisty, erratic owner who wants to win the league and he wants to do it yesterday, like, and you know, he'll he'll trample over anything and he <laughs> he possibly can to do that. There's just no compa- compatibility there, and I don't think there ever will be. So, like, well, I still. The question is for Forest fans then is what's best for now, I think. And it all depends on who would who would come in. You know, Julian Lopetegu is kind of waiting in the wings for whatever jobs come up now. He had a, a, a remarkable impact at, at Wolves. He's a great manager and who knows, it might it might that might provoke something. I don't want that to happen. I'd love to see Maranakis learn from the error, you know, from his mistakes. But I think the chances of that happening are very slim, so Steve Cooper might survive, but I don't think there's there's any longevity in this union. Saturday, home to Bournemouth, another huge game. I said Arsenal against Liverpool was the game of the weekend. Maybe that is the game of the weekend instead for Forest fans. Um, chaps, we'll have to leave it there. Gregor, Hamza and Tom, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you too for listening. As I said earlier, if you've got any strong views, whether it's on Emmy Martinez, Steve Cooper, or maybe just want to praise Sean Lash, or hey, even send us some Christmas wishes, you can get in touch with me, tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. We'll be back for our final show before Christmas on Thursday. See you then. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.